But good morning, RCC. Good, good to see everybody online and in-house as well. Uh, I'm the lead minister here at RCC and excited to begin uh, our fall teaching series where we ask our entire church to go through the same content for the next couple of weeks. We, we, we're calling this series B because we're going to be talking about Revelation 2 and chapter 3. And these are letters of, uh, from Jesus to first century churches of the kind of churches that Jesus wants them to be. And, you know, uh, because we're still the Christian church, the kind of church that Jesus wants us to be, the kind of church that Jesus would want to text seats to whatever our 10-digit number is to come. And so we're going to look at the kind of church Jesus wants us to be. Now, when you, when you walked in, you should have received your B guides. That's for everybody at our church. Uh, if you're watching online and you're not ready to come back yet in person, you can go to our website, click on the B tab, and you can download a PDF version uh, of our B guides. Uh, th- the point is we want the whole church going through God's word the same time, t- reading and talking about the same thing. Uh, our life groups are going through this, and we, re- we understand that um, not everyone's comfortable being in a life group in this season. That's fine, uh, but we still want to be in God's Word. So I uh, encourage you to pick up a bee guide, grab some extras if you want to circle up or pair up with somebody that you know, uh, uh, someone in your family, a friend, a neighbor, office worker, whatever. It does, doesn't matter. We want everyone to go through this uh, content together as a church. And before I jump into Revelation, I do want to thank some pretty awesome, uh, incredible people. Karen Hess, uh, who helped write some of this uh, content, Lauren Frost and Allie Trout, all put, all put their time and energy and hearts into creating this bee guide for you. So can we give them a hand? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you know it's good because they wrote it and put it together. Um, but the beauty about the church and community, you can play to your weaknesses and see the strengths come out in other people. So really excited that our church has kind of owned this series and put this content together. And so thankful for uh, Crystal, my wife, who put it together through uh, graphic design. Yeah. Yeah. I guess you should clap for my wife, right? Um, graphic design is a gift of the spirit, I've heard. Um, but let, let's get into that weird Halloween scary book called Revelation. It's not as bad as maybe what your grandma told you, okay? Uh, In Revelation, I want to give you some background before we jump into our first city in Ephesus. The word revelation just, it just simply means an unveiling or a disclosure. So as God, uh, through the Holy Spirit, uh, discloses to uh, the different writers of the Bible, here's what I want you to put in, that's what they're doing. Now, we don't have time to jump into this idea of revelation, but there's general revelation where you look around and you see uh, the beautiful fall in New England, which is the best. We do fall better than anybody else. Uh, but, and you don't have to be religious, you just have to be able to look and see the, the things that are around us. But then there's special revelation, which is to know that God created the seasons and that God sent his son Jesus to die for uh, our sins. That's ultimately what John is trying to get across and what all of the Bible writers actually are trying to get across. Uh, it's funny, um, w- which I agree, people have told me politics don't belong in the, in the pulpit or the high top table, uh, w- which I would agree. But then they also say, hey, could you preach on Revelation? Like, that's the most political book in the whole Bible. Uh, maybe you could argue maybe Daniel. You could also argue every book has a little bit of politics in it. 
You're going to hear the politics of the Roman Empire every week for the next seven weeks as it relates to the city we're talking about. And the three words that are up for grabs uh, are these words, Jesus is Lord. Or maybe we should ask the question, who is Lord? Um, Jesus is Lord is not a statement uh, of theology that came out of the church. Uh, It was a statement that the writers of the New Testament, they steal a lot, that they stole from the political system of the Roman Empire. The the phrase goes like this, Caesar is Lord. What does that mean? Well, it means Caesar has complete sovereignty. He's in control. He, you know, your mom and grandma got it wrong. Caesar holds the whole world in his hands, not Jesus. And so every time you hear this word or phrase, Jesus is Lord, is a political statement against the first century Roman Empire, where the writers of the Bible are saying there's never been a president, there's never been a Caesar, there's never been an emperor that has been in complete control of humanity, even though all Roman emperors in the first century believed themselves to be God, right? Imagine the arrogance of that. And when they had children, and when their wives or concubines birthed uh, boys, they were known as what? Sons of, sons of God. John, one of Jesus' followers, wrote the book of Revelation about, depends on, you know, because I know you read commentaries late into the night, about 65 AD, about 30 years or so after Jesus lived and and, and resurrected, which personally, um, if you're not a non-believer, I love this kind of stuff because the original New Testament manuscripts are some of the most closest uh, things that we've discovered to the actual events versus other you know, readings of, of, of Greek and Roman writers that we just, you know, for whatever reason, we just accept because our professor said they're, they're, they're true. John wrote uh, the book of Revelation on this lush, you know, place called Patmos. Throw it up there, guys. Um, this is not what it looked back then because you were like, I'd love to write a book on Patmos, right? But on Patmos Island, back when Rome occupied it, you got to put your, you got to put your, um, you, you got to put the folks that, that break the law somewhere, right? You, you got to put your exile somewhere. This is where John would have gone uh, to live in exile across the Mediterranean, uh, away from his Christian brothers and sisters. John was a pastor, the church in Ephesus. Uh, at this point, Christianity has sort of uh, immigrated from Israel to Ephesus, and so the, 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 the core of the Jesus movement is no longer in Israel at this point, although there are Christians there even today, but it has moved over to Ephesus, which is part of Asia Minor or modern-day uh, modern Turkey. You're going to love this guy. Here's a picture of Domitian, the emperor around the time that Revelation was written. What, was he nice to the Christians? Well, let me read you this quote by an, or, an early historian, uh, Pliny. Domitian, or Domitian, was the beast from hell, what a Hallmark card, who sat in his den licking blood. Now you know why John uses language of a beast in Revelation. It's a statement against the Roman political empire. Domitian was not a good dude. It was not easy to be a Christian under his political regime. Revelation, at least chapter 2 and 3, is a letter uh, that travels through 
the, um, the, the seven cities along Asia Minor. You guys can throw that up there. And we're going to start with Ephesus, then we'll head to Smyrna next week, then Pergamum, and so forth. Uh, and so on. So basically, uh, it was an oral culture. And so when you read Revelation, you're going to see a lot of repetition and you're going to see a lot of imagery, which happens a lot in cultures where uh, most of the people uh, are actually uh, illiterate. And so it, this letter to the Ephesian church, yes, would have started in Ephesus, but the Christians would have gotten together and it would have made its rounds to the other cities. This is sort of like a U.S. Postal Service mail route. If that kind of helps you put your put your head around it a little more. So these letters would have traveled throughout the Roman uh, government. Now, there, there are two um, sort of things that the early church and our church today even needs to wa- watch out for, two threats, and that is conflict and compromise. Jesus, in Revelation 2 and 3, will use language of encouragement when the Christians are um, in conflict, and then Jesus will use language of challenge when they're about to compromise their position in following Jesus. The three phrases that you need to know, hang with me, we'll get to the text, but this is important. The three phases, phrases you need to know in these uh, seven cities are, are, are these. The first one is, to the angel of the church in, and then the letter begins uh, to read at however, whatever city it's going to. An angel is simply just a messenger, someone communicating what a king wants to communicate with his kingdom. That's why when John comes before Jesus and makes an, an announcement, the king, Jesus here, the kingdom of God is here, that's what you did in the first century to announce a new political regime. You can't post it on Facebook back in the first century. You have to send somebody ahead of the king saying, get ready, the kingdom is coming, a king is coming, then everybody, you know, if they like the guy, they're like, you're kind of like, you know, our political system, oh great, this, you know, person in power is coming, this is great, and other people freak out because they wonder how he's actually going uh, to rule and reign. The second phrase you need to know is, I know. Jesus knows these churches, right? He's in their, you know, modern day elder meetings, staff meetings, life groups, conversations that that you have with other people here at RCC. Jesus knows these churches deeply. Jesus is not a God that creates humanity and just says, all right, I'm I'm indifferent to it. Good luck, right? By the way, watch out for 2020. It's coming. Jesus is a God that has a humongous pastoral heart. And so every week, Jesus is going to, well, except for one city, Jesus is going to say, you're doing this really well, but you need to grow in this area. The final statement you need to be aware of is this short phrase, to the one who conquers. You love the word conquer. You don't know it, but you buy, the word, you buy its shoes, like I have on today. The word conquer comes from the Greek word Nike. Nike is a Roman goddess uh, that represented the Roman military. And she had these big, massive wings. And it was a symbol of Roman military vision and expansion of the Roman Empire <laughs> throughout the first century world. This is what it meant to live in the first century under the rule and reign of these different empires in, emperors in the Roman Empire. Now, 
we get to hear what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles or claim to be Christians, but are not. And you found them to be false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And you've not grown weary. Man, <laughs> weary is a great word to describe, at least for me personally, the last six months. And Jesus says, I know you're tired, like, but you're, you're fighting the good fight. Yet I, told, uh, I hold this against you. Here's the area that you need to grow in. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you've fallen. Repent. Do the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. These are the false teachers, which I also hate. Jesus loves theology. Uh, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear What's the, what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, that's the Nike word, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So let's talk about Ephesus. Ephesus was a powerhouse. You wanted to move your family to Ephesus and raise your family. It was wealthy, it had influence, and it was uh, it was the um, sort of the gossip conversation among other cities in first century Rome. It dominated, it had massive theological significance as well as economical uh, pr uh, influence. It was rich, it was proud, they had a busy seaport, a massive agora, or it's a Greek word for, for marketplace. Uh, they had a massive public restroom, which you might not think is a big deal, but in the first century it was a very big deal. Massive library and a theater that you're looking at right now, now that would seat over 23,000 people. You know, when, um, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, when, when Luke is writing Paul's journey to the church in Ephesus, and he like grills them for building, the, which we'll get to in a second, these false little gods of Artemis, right? And people get ticked at him. You're looking at it right there. Like, I just love the historical relevance of the scriptures. Now, the religion of Ephesus, well, the Roman Empire didn't really care what you believed as long as you thought Caesar was Lord, but the first century Ephesian church worshipped at the temple of Artemis, or Diana. She had different names. And this probably caused a lot of tension in some first century marriages, especially if you left the church and began worshipping Artemis. See, Artemis was the goddess of fertility. I'll let you fill in the blank. And people went to worship Artemis. Why? Oftentimes it's the same way we kind of Treat God, actually, as a transactional relationship. If I go to church, then you'll bless me. If I do this, this will happen, right? And if not, God, I'll leave church and I'll be disappointed. See, people went to Artemis in the first century so their wives could have babies. Their families could be healthy. All the things that you want for a family, or most people want for a family. Uh, their family's secure. Uh, if they're farmers, they have a good crop for the year. They go to the temple to worship Artemis, so their lives will actually, in turn, be blessed. Here's another thing that you need to know about Ephesus, as well as other cities in first century Rome. No matter where you went, this was across the board in your face, right? It was engraved in, in gateways and on walls and maybe in the ground and some banners. It was this phrase that I've just talked about, that Caesar is Lord. 
And to say Lord means not just like a president, but he's, he's God, right? Rome is a theocracy, and the emperor was in charge. And I want you to go there, if you can, emotionally. This is what the first century Christians are dealing with in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. And then Jesus, through John, says some weirdly, like, weird stuff, right? He says, uh, I walk, like, basically the churches are like a lampstand, and I walk among the lampstands. What's, what's he talking about? When he, when he says a church is a lampstand, basically what he's saying is every church has a certain level of influence in its city, in its community. And every seven weeks, we'll go to a different lampstand, a different city, and Jesus will say, keep doing this, and I'll allow the candle to burn. Stop doing this, and I'll squinch it, or squelch it. Right, this is some heavy, heavy stuff, right? But, 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 but notice something, what, he, what he's saying. This is a direct attack against Domitian and the Roman political figures, right? What John is saying, what Jesus is saying through John is, is I'm in control of these cities. I'm in control of the culture. I'm in control of the influence that each church has in its city. What kind of influence do you think Jesus would say RCC has in its community? I don't know, but I can't, I can't wait to ask him, <laughs> right? Because if you want to know how a church is doing, you don't ask the church. If I want to know how a couple is doing, I'm not going to ask the one spouse. I'm going to ask the other spouse. Hey, how is he or she treating you, right? I'm not going to ask a church. I'm not going to ask you <laughs> what the reputation is in Salem of RCC. I'm going to ask people that don't go to church, that live in Salem, that aren't Christians. See what I'm saying? Jesus is saying every church has a certain level of, of influence. And then there's this weird, <laughs> this weird language about Jesus holding the seven stars in his hand. What he's referring to is this coin. Domitian had a son, and he was the son of God, but unfortunately passed away uh, before he um, grew old. And so a way to memorialize his son is he put his image on this coin, and there's seven stars on the coin representing the seven cities that uh, John, through Jesus, is actually writing to. And Jesus says, I hold the seven stars in my hand. What's he talking about? <laughs> There's a reason why Jesus said when asked about, you know, uh, going to H&R Block and paying your taxes, when Jesus said, give to Caesars what is Caesars, what he's saying is, if Caesar's image is on a coin, what belongs to him? Don't be selfish, give it back. So yeah, pay your taxes. Right? When in the first century, if your image was on something, everybody knew who it belonged to. And I think the reason why Jesus wasn't, I mean, you can't, depending on punctuation and, you know, happened over 2,000 years ago, it's hard to read into the text emotionally. But I think the reason why he didn't get riled up about, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar who's oppressing the Christians is because Jesus knows what belongs to him. Do you know who belongs to Jesus? You do. Even wicked Nicolaitans and even wicked oppressive political leaders like Domitian, because his image is stamped on every human being, whether you like them or don't like them. And so Jesus says correctly, I'm the one who holds the seven stars. I'm in control of Rome. I'm in control of uh, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. <laughs> you may think that you're in charge, but I'm in complete charge of the Roman 
Empire, and Jesus says, I know your deeds in Revelation 2.2. And so what was, what was the church in Ephesus really good at? They were really good at theology. The Ephesian church loves theology. Look at verse 2 and 3. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not. You've found them to be false. You've persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you have not grown weary. This church could sniff out a false teacher from a mile away. Can we do that? I'm, I'm asking you. And, and it's not a question of judgment. It's a, it's a question of self-examination. Do you know why the cross is so important to your faith? Not, and you can't say, well, Jesus loves me. Like, can you communicate that scripturally? Do you know why big words like sanctification, justification, propitiation matter? Right? Our theology matters. And Jesus says, like, I hate those Nicolaitans. I hate those guys because they're throwing the church. They're, they're actually dividing and splitting the church up. But Jesus says, you have done really well in teaching good theology. Well, what would be good theology to an, uh, uh, you know, a non-Christian Ephesian? Uh, well, probably um, the government is not in control of your life. God is. Um, Artemis is false. She's not going to give you a health and wealth kind of life. Uh, Jesus will give you the life of the cross if you follow him. And some days it'll be good. Some days it, 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 it won't be. They love their theology. This is a kind of church in 2020 that um, people go because they love Bible studies. And that's fine. But they just want to know how many Bible studies you can go to. Uh, it's really hard to get this church to serve much less serve in their own community. If it fits their schedule, then maybe they'll, maybe they'll do it. And Jesus says, here's the area that you need to grow in. The Ephesian church did not love well, right? They did not love well. You know, you know that. You've been to a church where you felt like it's kind of cold. I don't, you know, or I, I went through a hard season in my life and the church was like, I don't really want to deal with that. I just want to be theoretical on the weekends. Some of us have had that experience. I've had that experienced before. I've worked in those churches that were high on theology and low on love. Notice what Jesus says. I hold this against you. You've forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Whoa. Whoa. So not loving people far from Jesus makes me fall away from Jesus? Repent and do the things you did at first. Sometimes Christians need to repent more than non-Christians. Amen? Yes is the answer. Uh, if you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand. I will, if you do not love people well, I'm, I really want to touch this, but I won't. I'm going to take your light of influence away. Now, here, here's the sad thing, right, about churches that have no influence. They don't know it, and they don't want to admit it, because they got enough money to pay the mortgage, to keep the lights on, but they probably couldn't tell you the last time they baptized more than five people in a year. And Jesus says, probably because I've taken away your light of influence because you do not love people well. Get your head out of the books and start loving people. Now, that's not true for every church because there's another church we're going to talk about that the opposite is actually true. He says in verse 7, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit tells the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give you the right to eat from the tree of life in paradise. It was easy Friends, it was easy to not love well in the Ephesian church. 
I'll tell you why. Rome was an abandonment culture. Rome is a cancellation culture city or empire, much like our culture today. Right? Somebody doesn't like something, somebody mistweets, misposts, misgrams, whatever. Um, it, it, it's, this, it's this all at war. Don't go to this restaurant, don't watch this movie, don't talk to this person, this person's an idiot, don't engage with him. All of this stuff, it's a cancellation culture. Like the, <laughs> we're not that different than the Roman Empire. But it's also an abandonment culture. That in Ephesus, if you don't want to do hard things, you don't really have to do hard things. Right? It's really, it's like, as a pastor, like, I can't imagine, like, it's probably really hard to come back to church uh, after being gone away for six months, right? It, it's really hard to go back into some of those routines that you were in pre-COVID. Like, I, I get that. I'm trying to say that pastorally. I'm not trying to come down, come down on anybody. But it was in the face of the Ephesian church, I'll prove it to you, when a couple had a child because of the patriarch set up back then in the scriptures, the husband decided in Ephesus if he wanted to keep the child. If he didn't want to keep the child, a few things could happen. He would place the baby outside of the city, sort of like a local dumpster, and just leave the baby. Uh, outside of a city is really critical uh, in your theology of the cross. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. The goat in Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, as, uh, Jews call it Yom Kippur, uh, there was a red ring they put around the, uh, the goat, and they kicked it out of the, you know, the, the camp, and it fell off the cliff. Terrible bedtime story. But it's, the point is to show that Jesus would die outside of the city of Jerusalem. And so the baby was left for dead. I've read other, um, other theologians' books where there were even hills and, and cliffs that the dad would go up. Sometimes, more times than not, the baby would be taken to a, an probably um, an Ephesian um, sort of religious leader, probably at the Temple of Artemis, and would take it to the priest or whatever they were called back then and lay it at the priest's feet or whatever and say, you, you, you deal with it. You, you take it. There was, there was like little to no regard for human life in the Roman Empire much like our American culture. I mean, how many people have you unfriended and hated over the last two to three months? Um, this may seem sideways, but it's part of where I'm going. Um, I, I asked the elders if, if I could make, a, with their blessing, a political statement. <laughs> it's the only political statement about American politics you'll ever hear me uh, say, because I agree with people. Uh, the kingdom of God is more beautiful than the Republican Democratic Party, and even for uh, the Libertarian Party as well. I don't want to forget you guys. Um, throughout history, like Rome, political systems have used uh, sort of two tactics, uh, fear, anger, they go hand in hand, and propaganda. When Jesus talks about his, and I don't have too much time to get into it, but almost the political aspect of the kingdom of God, you know what he uses, what, what his tactics are, what, his can what he runs on for his campaign? Grace and truth. And so RCC, Rockingham Christian Church, will always be, always be a, a political church. We, I will never endorse a candidate. I will never lower myself to American political standards because we are first citizens of the kingdom of God who happen to live in America 
where we are encouraged through the scriptures. I'm going to put this out in an email so you can read it later and have it on print. I, I want to make sure I'm, I want to communicate clearly and give you some scriptures. But we also understand that we live in America, and the Bible does encourage us to engage in the culture, in the political system, in the life of what's going on in Salem and surrounding communities, but it does not get our heart. It, we, we are not a church that says, Jesus is Lord, I love the kingdom of God, but if someone votes differently than me, my heart is sort of uh, paralyzed by that. We do not say Jesus is Lord, we live in the kingdom of God, but yet our heart belongs to the Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian parties. This is what the first century Christians would deal with. And they lived in this abandonment culture. And what unites us is the blood of Christ. It's the gospel. Like when this, I've said this so many times, when the Christians first gathered in the first century and they had to give a name for their group during the Roman census, they were so diverse. They didn't know what to call each other. You know what they call themselves? They named themselves after the leader. Well, let's just call ourselves Christians, like little Christ. We want to be like Jesus. And a group that was so diverse, the one thing that united them became the name of that group. They were Christians. And we are counterculture to the Roman Empire and to the American culture. We are not an abandonment culture. We are not a cancellation culture. The church has no room for sexism, bigotry, racism, or any hatred. And if there is, if I find out there is in any form, myself and our elder team will address it head on. I'll prove it to you. There's a reason why writers in the Bible write the things that they write. In the book of Ephesians, which would have gone to the same city that we're talking about, oh man, you're, you're, not, even, you're not even ready to hear this. In Ephesians 1, 4 through 6, Paul says this, For he, God the Father, chose him, Jesus, before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us, what? For what? For adoption. For adoption. To sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance uh, with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has given us freely in the one he loves. We belong to Jesus through adoption, which, by the way, adopting a child is the most gospel, one of the most gospel-saturated things you can do while living on planet Earth. Roman, the Roman Empire says you are defined by who throws you out. The gospel in the first century church in RCC says, the gospel says you are defined not by who throws you out, but who takes you in. Who welcomes you? You were left for dead, if Paul was telling the truth. You were left for dead in your sin. But what does Romans tell us? While we were still sinners, while we were still alienated from God, while we were still walking around like the prodigal son, trying to find purpose and meaning, we felt like nobody loved us, we can't connect with anybody, what does God do with humanity? He makes a way for us to come home. The God of the Bible, which is different than the goddess of Rome, uh, uh, Artemis, <laughs> uh, says you're defined by inclusion, not exclusion, by who the church loves well and takes in in their most critical time and need. To be loved is to be messy. Watch this video from Hannah and Zach. 
Hey, what's up, Rockingham Christian Church? My name is Zach Blank, and this is my wife, Hannah. Uh, we're good friends of Ben's, and so Ben asked us to share a little bit about what it means to be loved for your guys' current sermon series through Revelation. So I'm going to let my wife, Hannah, here uh, share a little bit about our story. Um, so Zach and I have uh, struggled with infertility for about six years. Um, we kind of decided we were going to go the adoption foster out so we started um, the process to become foster parents and then um, COVID happened so everything got put on hold and so we were just kind of in a waiting period and then um, through my work I work in the NICU um, I had a co-worker reach out to me um, and basically said she knew of somebody that wanted to give their baby up for adoption and wanted us to have her. And so um, less than 48 hours after finding out about her, um, we brought her home. So now we are kind of doing things backwards, which is kind of Zach and I's MO. Um, we, you know, are now becoming licensed and and all of that stuff. So that's kind of a little bit of our background. Yeah, and so I think we would say that before this whole thing, um, we thought we knew what it looked like to be loved to other people, um, but this has really changed our opinion of that. Um, you know, early on in the process, you know, we thought it was about adopting one baby and, and that whole thing. And then God has opened up our eyes to uh, so much more than that, because there's no such thing as just adopting a baby. They don't just come out of thin air. Um, so as we've brought home our foster daughter, we've inherited an entire second family. Um, and so we've loved them through all sorts of things that we can't really talk about. Um, some messy, some not, but through it all, um, I'd say the biggest impact for us in being loved has been being open to mess. Uh, being open to short notice, less than 48 hours to bring home a baby, get a crib put together, um, figure out how to get diapers and formula, changing diapers, I mean all of it was nuts. And even through all this, there's been times with the birth family where things have been tough and we've had to be flexible um, and pray for them nightly about the things they're going through. Um, but ultimately, God has been working in that situation and has brought um, so much joy into seeing lives turn around, um, seeing families brought back together, being brought to wholesomeness, um, seeing a foster mom really get her life together and just explode with so much joy that it's been incredible to see her just catch fire um, for the system, for even God. She's even found God through this process, which has been nuts. So we wanna encourage you guys in your attempts to be love, be open to mess. Uh, know that grace uh, usually has a bit of a price, an, an emotional one at that. So uh, looking forward to hearing from Ben and his message and can't wait to see uh, what he's leading you guys through. I love what Zach said, that, that being loved to people is messy and it, it comes it comes at a price. And I, I don't know where you're at in your journey or what you think about RCC, if, if you think about RCC, but this is a moment of self-reflection. Are, are we loving? Are we more loving? Uh, do we love people more than our theology? Do we hold those both in equal tension? Because here's what Jesus says at the end of this letter. To the one, to the church who's victorious, Nike, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is in the paradise of God, the reward for a church that loves well. 
is life with Jesus. Is life with Jesus. So what's the, what's the charge this week, church? It's to be love. To be love, church. And let Jesus work in and through you. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks so much for these um, great letters of uh, it really just health and inventory of how uh, we're doing as a church. And Lord, I, I pray that you would, um, in the quietness of our hearts this week, I hope, I know it's, it, it, it's tough to carve out time to spend with you. Um, I know we're basically hanging out at our house a lot, but it's, it's still tough. Uh, would your spirit convict us and invite us into those spaces where we need to love well? Uh, and maybe we can have honest conversations with you that maybe we love theology more than people and help us hold both of those in tension that we can love well and still not compromise what we believe. Uh, God, I thank you for um, the impact and the charge that you're giving us to be loved to our community that they might spend life eternal with you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And as we move into this time of communion, I want to highlight one of the scriptures that Ben shared during his message. It's in the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, verses 4 and following. It said, For